One of my historical heroes is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you may know who that is. He was a Welsh pastor preacher who served at churches in Wales and London. He was born in 1899. His public ministry spanned from around 1929 to 1979, and he went to be with the Lord in 1981. His preaching ministry was widely influential during his life, and it continues today through his published works, and there are even recordings of his sermons, which I think they say that they never, he never knew that they were being recorded because he wouldn't have approved, but now they're out on the internet, which is a blessing to be able to hear his preaching. I, I think the reason that he stuck out to me so much, and one of the reasons I admire him, having read his biography, is just his character. He, he was proven faithful over his many years in ministry, his life by all accounts was above reproach, and it was just an incredible testimony to, to his godliness. And, but one of the most personally impactful portions of his biography, for me, was the final months of his life and the account of those. His biographer and friend, Ian Murray, recounts conversations and letters from Dr. Lloyd-Jones during this time that reveal a man that was profoundly grateful to the Lord for his salvation. Beginning in the summer of 1980, about, oh, eight months before his death, Murray recounts and says, at this time when weakness and nausea were becoming so much a part of daily life, his spirit was bright with gratitude. God's great kindness became his main theme. Speaking to me on the phone on June 27th, he said, I have nothing but praise in my heart. I am more aware of the goodness of God than ever before and that I am a debtor to mercy alone. To a friend, Dr. Lloyd-Jones wrote on September 20th, 1980, you will be sorry to hear that my health has not been at all good this summer. I've not been able to preach or to do anything else since the beginning of June. I have to go into the hospital every three weeks for a few days special treatment and it tends to leave me somewhat weak. However, I thank God for his great kindness and mercy to me over these long years and for the privilege of being able to do some work in his glorious kingdom. In mid-1981, mid-January 1981, just over a month from his death, his biographer and friend recounts the following conversation. Lloyd-Jones said, when you come to where I am, there is only one thing that matters. That is your relationship to him and your knowledge of him. Nothing else matters. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Our best works are tainted. We are sinners saved by grace. We are debtors to mercy alone. To this, says Murray, I replied that I used foolishly to think that there was something rather wrong about some of the old saints who, when dying, prayed the words that Jesus commended, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lloyd-Jones responded, so did I, but it's rubbish. That's where you will come to. I've been brought to that. I am nothing but an old sinner saved by the grace of God. Then after a pause with profound emotion and broken voice, he said, God is very patient with us and very kind, and he suffers our evil manners like he did with the children of Israel, the love of God. Finally, in his last letter to an old friend, one month before his death, he wrote, I thank God for all his bountiful goodness to me over the long years and for all he has graciously allowed me and enabled me to do. My supreme desire now is to testify more than ever to the glory and wonder of his grace. He indeed is a gracious God. This testimony of Dr. Lloyd-Jones in his waning moments on the earth is one of profound, faith-filled gratitude. 
after all he had accomplished. And some would say, look, this is a man who moved mountains for the Lord. This man's ministry was profoundly impactful. And yet after all that, after all he was involved in, the end of his days, he was found to be simply a humble man, amazed that he had been the recipient of God's grace. And in that, he's a powerful example to us of the deep-seated, God-centered gratitude that is to characterize God's people. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, we read that one of the marks of a spirit-filled life is always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, even the Father. We are that, always giving thanks in all things. And we think, what, what's going on? Is, is Paul just telling us to, to feel better all the time? And no, Paul is not simply instructing us to stir up, to cultivate shallow emotions or feelings of thanksgiving without any foundation. It's not a suggestion for Christians to look on the bright side. Like, ah, just look on the bright side of life. It's a portrait of one characterized by the Spirit of God. Gratitude, always giving thanks for all things, is to be the consistent chorus of the transformed life. It starts with gratitude, and it ends with gratitude to the Lord for salvation. All the other things are ancillary. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness. And, you know, sometimes it's easy for me, at least, singing that song. We think of all the things that the Lord has given us. And that's okay. That's right. He says all that we've needed, he, he has provided. We have everything that we could ever possibly need in Christ Jesus, the most important thing that we ever have, all that we need in full and justification. We have no spiritual want, in other words. There's experiential spiritual want. I understand we're pursuing holiness, but we are fully justified by the Lord Christ Jesus. God has been faithful to do that for those who believe. It's an amazing thing. And Christians are to be characterized by thankfulness and gratitude that overflows from that understanding. There is serious, life-altering theology that fuels Christian gratitude. We just sang about it. It's Christians are not simply to play mind games. It's not the power of positive thinking, okay? That's not what, what is to drive your humility and your gratitude, okay? What's to drive your humility and gratitude is theology, an understanding that you're an unworthy sinner who's been saved by grace. And that reality in the life of the Christian should fuel humility and it should fuel our gratitude. I wanna draw your attention tonight to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. And that's where we'll be for the remainder of our time as we consider God's word and then lead into our time around the Lord's table. Psalm 107 is a call to faith-filled gratitude. Through the recounting of different stories from the life of God's people, the psalmist intends to motivate praise and thanksgiving to God with a for a specific purpose. That is his merciful and his gracious deliverance. It's not thanksgiving in general, as we'll see. The psalmist recounts these these deliverances of, the God, of God for his people, and then calls for a response. And the response is gratitude. The response is praise. And it's praise directed and focused on the Lord's loving kindness. Now, if you've looked ahead in your Bible or flipped a page, you, you, you recognize that this psalm is 43 verses. And so I want to make some observations, actually a number of observations for you to keep in mind before I read it, to help you sort of get the sense 
of this psalm as we read through it together. And first, just notice that the psalm begins with a call for the Lord's people to offer praise and thanksgiving for his everlasting loving kindness. And then it ends with a call to consider that loving kindness. So you have these bookends. Verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. And then the very last verse, verse 43, consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. So our attention from beginning to end is the Lord's loving kindness. Also notice that there are these strategic repetitions of that same phrase, calling our attention to that aspect of the Lord's work in our lives. Verse eight, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Verse 21, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Each of these verses heralds that the Lord's loving kindness is the reason that the psalmist is saying that we should offer praise, that we should offer thanks, that God's people should respond with gratitude. That is where our attention should be throughout the psalm as we follow along with his stories, with what he's accounting, the experiences of God's people. Now that refrain is important. As you know, this word translated loving kindness in the NASB is steadfast love in the ESV or goodness and mercy in the King James. And it's that ever important Old Testament term that denotes the Lord's faithful, continuing, steadfast, loyal love for his people, which then motivates his gracious and merciful acts on their behalf. So this psalm is dripping with grace and mercy. We're praising the Lord for his loving kindness. That's the psalmist call. Praise him for his loving kindness. And with that terminology, we're to understand his gracious and merciful works that have happened, as we'll see, as a result of his loving kindness. So the whole psalm is concerned with God's people responding with gratitude for the steadfast love that he's shown to them. That's the call. Now, how's it structured? Well, verse, verses four through 32 contain four scenarios or four accounts where God's people are in trouble. So they're all in trouble. They're all in a dire situation. And then each time they cry out to God and each time he delivers them. And as a result, they're called to give proper praise and thanksgiving to the, to the Lord. Then beginning in verse 33 to the end of the psalm, there's a slight shift in tone. And now there's no longer stories from the life of God's people being recounted, but now a, a contemplation. And the psalmist contemplates the Lord's sovereign control over the circumstances of God's people. So he's gonna recount stories from the life of God's people, stories of deliverance that have occurred. He's gonna call on God's people as a result of those deliverances to praise him for his loving kindness. And then at the very end of the psalm, he contemplates that not every one of God's children has experienced these miraculous deliverances, but he considers the Lord's providential care and concern and control over the circumstances of life. And at the end of that, calls again for a consideration of his loving kindness. Now, the theme of deliverance runs throughout this song. Deliverance is the fuel for the fire of praise and thanksgiving in this text. It begins with a call for the redeemed to sing of this. It's the redeemed who are to offer praise. That limits it. It's not the entire world. The entire world doesn't know of the Lord's loving kindness in the way that the redeemed do, the community of believers who've experienced that grace and mercy. 
So he calls for the redeemed. And then in verses four through 32, the mighty acts of God are described like this, as redemption, as deliverance, as salvation. He says even being brought out of a circumstance. So these terms that we use to describe our spiritual salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ are used by the psalmist to portray God's intervening acts in these real life trials. And that action on his behalf is said to be motivated by his love. And so we need to be, understand that in the Old Testament, redemption, deliverance, and salvation was often both physical and spiritual. It was the whole, the whole picture, the whole deal, the whole person. So when we read these, and the situations involve very real physical deliverances, we should understand them as that. We shouldn't spiritualize them and just take out all the reality of what's going on. But they're not only physical. They're not merely physical. It's not merely physical salvation because when God acted on behalf of his people, as we see throughout the Old Testament, physical circumstances were in play, but it was because of spiritual realities. God delivered his people, his own treasured possession, out of affliction and to himself. They were delivered and redeemed for the purpose of worship. Think of the Exodus. What happened? That quintessential example of God as the redeemer, the redeeming God, a very real, a very physical, a very literal redemption out of enslavement to the people of Egypt. But they're called out to be a people unto God. They're rescued, not just so that they can go do whatever they want. They're literally delivered and they're set apart for worship. It was a literal physical redemption and yet the purpose was ultimately spiritual as what is evidenced by what takes place at Sinai when they gather to hear what it means to be the community of the Lord. And so that said, while I believe each scenario that we're gonna read in this psalm is real, a real historical account of a physical deliverance, they're illustrative of the spiritual salvation that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just listen to some of the ways that we're gonna see that they're described. Desert wanderers are taken to a safe dwelling. Prisoners are set free. The sick are made well. The storm-tossed are rescued. Those are the pictures, and they're real. Real storms, real sickness, real imprisonment, real wandering, and real deliverance. And by way of illustration, we could see all those as a portrait, a picture, of what every one of us who's been saved by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced spiritually. As, as you read, and as we read, there's almost a, a natural identification with these stories of deliverance. Because if you're saved, you see your own hopeless plight in the descriptions of these scenarios that God's people found themselves in and the inexplicable mercy that's poured out on these people when they call out to God for deliverance. And so this call of the psalmist to God's people to see what he has done, to remember what he has done, and then praise him for his loving kindness in light of what he has done, it extends to us. It extends to us because we've understood the Lord's de deliverance in the most profound way with the, the ultimate picture of deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've tasted the Lord's loving kindness at the most deep level in Jesus and experienced the one deliverance that every last soul on earth needs to be right with God and have eternal life. So with those things in mind, 
take a deep breath and follow along as I read Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also he blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow, he pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. But he sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and makes his families like a flock. 
The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. The psalm begins with an introductory call in verses one through three, and that call, as we've noted, is to the redeemed. It's basically, let the redeemed sing of the Lord's loving kindness. He is good. That is his character, his inherent goodness, as we even heard this morning from Pastor Rod. Everything about him. Remember in Exodus 34, he causes his goodness to pass before Moses and then becomes this, this list of his attributes, his love, his faithfulness, his maintaining of that love, his compassion. So he's good and his loving kindness is everlasting. That is his unceasing loyal love to his people will not end. He's eternal And his faithful loving kindness is eternal. And those who have tasted of that, those who are the redeemed, are those who are to be first and foremost at his throne singing of that reality. The redeemed are to offer praise and thanksgiving. That is, those who have been rescued, delivered, saved from adversity. In the Old Testament, redeemed often involved a close relative. You know the story of Ruth and Boaz well. Here it is God, the Redeemer. And his people, whom he has gathered from all directions, it says, to himself. And those people have experienced that are to offer praise. And not praise in general, but praise for his loving kindness. The fact that it says here in verse 3 that these folks have been gathered from the lands in east and west and north and south. Some think that this is maybe hinting at a a post-exilic psalm that this would have been when people were coming back from Babylon He was gathering them back, which, of course, would have been a redemptive act and also an act that displayed his loving kindness in a profound way. Whether that's the case or not, the fact remains that he's gathered his people, he's shown them loving kindness, and they're to praise him for that. And then verse 4 begins this recounting of these scenarios. And if you're looking for a rough outline, you could see maybe five testimonies to motivate faith-filled gratitude from the Lord's people. Five testimonies to motivate faith-filled gratitude from the Lord's people. And this first testimony happens in verse 4, and it goes through verse 9. And what you find here is the Lord's people in a desperate situation. They're in a desperate situation. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were lost. Lost in a desolate place. Unable to find a city which in those times was a big deal. Cities offered security, offered shelter, they offered rest, they offered sustenance, food. Being lost in the wilderness was a little bit more severe than it is today, being lost on I-70 between Kansas City and Denver, Colorado or something like that. This is more serious than that. So they're destitute, it says that they were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. They were feeble. Soul and life are synonymous here. Their soul fainted within them. Their, their spirit, their strength was dried up. And both emotionally they would have been fainting and physically based on their hunger and their thirst. The idea is it's desperate. It's hopeless. 
They're not only lost, but they're hungry. And you see this crying out to the Lord in verse six. From their trouble, at their end, the end of themselves, without any hope, they cry out to the Lord and he delivers them out of their distresses. This is the refrain, this pattern will be repeated through every scenario. Situation described, it's desperate, it's hopeless. They cry out to God. They, they bring nothing to the table. They bring nothing to offer. They are just crying out for help. And the Lord delivers them. His deliverance in this scenario, and it, it's always phrased as specifically addressing their plight. The Lord's care and kindness is evident even in the way the psalmist recounts how he delivered them. It's not just that he delivered them. Verse seven, he led them by a straight way. They were lost. They were wandering in the wilderness, but the Lord leads them back along a straight, a level path. And they go from being in a desert region without an inhabited city now to go to an inhabited city. So all of their woes are met. The Lord brings them by a, by a straight way. He puts them back in a place of security. He addresses their need. Their need was security. Their need was the security that comes from being in an inhabited place. And that's exactly where the Lord brings them in his deliverance. And the proper response for these folks is to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord for his marvelous work on their behalf. I mean, it's the, it, it really is that simple. There's no top secret exegetical key here. It's the scene that, we can, that resonates with us, we understand it, we understand the imagery, and then there's a response that's called for, for God, from God's people. Note that the sons of men at the end of verse eight, this refrain, so he says, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, that important terminology, that important aspect of his character, and then for his wonders to the sons of men. Sons of men identifies the frailty of those whom he rescued. Mere men, that's the idea to think throughout this psalm that the God of the universe would show care and kindness to mere mortals in these situations. Mere dust. That's the idea. And it's repeated throughout. So his first testimony, this desperate situation. People are desperate. And then in, in verse 10 and then again in verse 17, you see two more testimonies. And now you go from desperate situations to situations where people are disobedient. So if you're looking at this through the four, you could say there are two where God shows his care and loving kindness, his mercy and grace to those who are in desperate situations. And then there are two where he shows grace and mercy, they're in desperate situations, but more explicitly because of their disobedience. And the Lord's merciful to all of them. So verse 10 begins the second testimony. And here the Lord's people are experiencing captivity as a result of their own sinful rebellion. Again, the desperate situation is made clear by the imagery that the psalmist uses. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. Verse 11 gives the reason. Because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Their condition is desperate once again, but here it's shown to be because of their rebellion. They've ignored, they've spurned, they've thrown it off, the counsel of God. And they have sort of high-handed rebellion against the word of God. 
They know what he said. They've turned from it. You can't read those verses without taking a moment and just letting that sink in for a minute. This is God's people. These are people who knew the true God, the God of Israel. They had been given his word, and they said, nah, don't need it. Don't want it. And similarly, we have God's word. We've had the truth revealed to us. We've had grace upon grace poured out on us in his revelation. And yet it's so easy for us to say, yes, but I know God desires that. I know God expects that, but. And here God says that these folks were in a desperate situation because of that rebellion. We're reminded even of the testimony in Hebrews 12 where the Lord disciplines those who are his and that's what's going on here. They're in darkness, they're in prison because of their rebellion. So what did the Lord do? Well, he disciplined them. Look at verse 12. He humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help. They're being laid low. The Lord's loyal love motivates the discipline of his children. But then in verse 13, they cry out once again. They're disobedient, they're in prison, they're being laid low, and yet they cry out to the Lord. They turn in repentance. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he is faithful once again to rescue them. He saves them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness. Verse 10 says they were dwelling in it. They were in the shadow of death. They were prisoners in misery and chains. And now once again, his deliverance, his deliverance addresses their plight specifically. They were in prison and darkness. They were in misery and chains. He brings them out of the darkness, out of the shadow of death, and he breaks their bands apart. Verse 14. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars a thunder asunder. He destroyed what was holding them in. They cried out. They were brought to the end. They had been laid low, had nothing to offer. Their high-handedness had been met with punishment and discipline. And they called out to God in their trouble from a desperate situation. He saves them. As a result, they're to call out, praise, thanksgiving for the Lord's loving kindness. Verse 17 brings us to a third testimony. A third testimony. And here the Lord's people once again are experiencing affliction because of sin. Affliction because of sin. Verse 17 doesn't mince words. Fools. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. We don't know exactly what the affliction is, some sort of illness by the way that the rest of the, this scenario is described. But the point is, is that they're afflicted because of their rebellion, because of their iniquities. Their rebellious way, their iniquities, those are two sides of the same coin. It's poetic parallelism used to describe what's going on. They're afflicted because of their sin. What's their affliction like? Verse 18, their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. They didn't want to eat in a lowly situation. The depth that some will go 
before turning to the Lord. To be here where they didn't want to eat, and yet they were near to death because of illness, starvation. But in the midst of that discipline, in the midst of what appears to be, this isn't pleasant, the Lord's loving kindness then shines brightly. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. The great physician comes to the rescue in verse 20. He sent his word and healed them. He heals their affliction, able to mend the body and restore the soul. Here, as in other Psalms, this scenario, again, it's physical and spiritual connection. He delivered them from their destructions. So what's the result? You guys see a theme here? Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. So here the response gets expanded just a little bit. The content's still to be loving kindness. You're still to praise, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his works to the sons of men. And this, they offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. You hear that, some of you may, may be reminded of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, which is instructive to us. It says this, through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. One of the offerings that we're to bring as God's people continually before his throne our lips praising him, and in particular, giving thanks to his name. Say thanks for what? Thanks primarily for his loving kindness, for his salvation. Certainly all the kindnesses that you enjoy in this world. But as our psalm is zeroing in on, his loving kindness, his mercy and grace to those who absolutely do not deserve it. The Lord is pleased with that sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Those who've been rescued out of this affliction because of their own doing, their own rebellion, and then his deliverance comes and they are to tell of his works with joyful singing. To be ecstatic about what the Lord's done in their life. Verse 23 then moves to the fourth scenario and this shifts back. So we've had two in a row where disobedience is in view and now we're going back to a desperate situation that disobedience isn't necessarily in view. It's just a, a hopeless situation. So you have men struggling at sea. And it's, a gra- it's a graphic scene. It, he, he paints a picture first. These guys aren't novices. It's kind of the idea. They're experienced sailors. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, this is their lifestyle. They're sailors. They've seen the works of the Lord, verse 24, and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths, riding up and down the waves, the torrent, the storm. And these experienced sailors, how desperate was it? In verse 26, their soul melted away in their misery. You can't really hear this scene without thinking of Christ and his disciples and think of their response, right, to their storm. 
they think they're about to die. I see that their soul was melting away in their misery when they cried out to the Lord Jesus. Don't you care about us? We're gonna die. Similarly in this psalm, their soul melted away. Verse 27, they reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. I've never been on the high seas. I've never been on a cruise. I've never been on anything with which I might experience anything that even resembles what this is like. And reading this, I don't want anything to do with it. They experienced sailors reeling and staggering, being at their wits end because of this situation. We're supposed to feel the, the weight of the desperate situation. Once again, they're at their wits end. They're at the end of themselves. Their resources are nil. Their sailing expertise, their their saltiness, their experience. It's no longer any good. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distresses. Verse 29, he causes the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet and he guided them to their desired haven. Verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Verse 32, let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. This experience was to be shared. They were supposed to praise God in front of a whole lot of people. They were to tell others. The congregation of the people would have been the community of God's people. They were to recount this to them, tell of what he had done for them. Then the seat of the elders is where the leaders of the city would have commonly been gathered. They were to praise him before them as well. Look at what the Lord has done. Look at how the Lord rescued us. Oh, his loving kindness to us. That's the idea. His wonders to the sons of men. The the care and compassion of the Lord. Their senses are overwhelmed. They're at their wit's end. And the Lord comes to their rescue. When people were gathered around with each audience, the sailors are called upon by the psalmist to exalt God. There's an interesting poetic note here. You have just as the, the, the waves of the sea were lifted up, they're to lift up the Lord's name. And again, we find it impossible to read this and not think of the Lord Jesus and that illustration of this. When God incarnate was with his people in a boat, in a storm, with experienced sailors who had, or fishermen who were at their wit's end and thought they were gonna die. And the Lord to show who he was and also to extend his loving kindness and care, challenge them in their faith. He calms the sea, grants them safe passage. The idea is that this gracious, powerful God who is not obligated to intervene, he does. He's not obligated to extend compassion and mercy, but he does because of his loving kindness. 
So for those who are in a desperate situation that we don't have a whole lot of other circumstances for or those who are in a desperate situation because of their own disobedience, they're all called by the psalmist to do the same thing and that is to recognize the Lord's grace and mercy and praise him for it, be thankful for it, be filled, overflowing with gratitude because of what the Lord had done for them. There are several things devotionally you can take away from this psalm. It informs our prayers. God cares for his people. I mean, we see that. It's plain. He cares for these desperate situations. He cares for his people even when they're disobedient and they're enduring punishment. And as a loving father, he may bring affliction to change course, but that's a grace. The psalmist would say that's even evidence of the Lord's loving kindness. He humbles the heart. And then that humbled heart responds in repentance cries out for deliverance and the Lord is kind and merciful and does. It informs our praise. Christians of all people should not have to look very far for reasons to praise and thank God. Every time we gather together here, it is a reminder that we've been called out, called out of that and into this. Well, what's this? The body of Christ. We all share the same, the same hopeless situation. We'll share the same need for deliverance. We all share the same experience of having God reach down, pulled us out of death, and put us into life purely because he's gracious and merciful and loving. So it informs our praise, just like these scenarios. And again, I, I think it's fair to take these as illustrative. We can read these and very easily see our spiritual condition pictured, lost at sea, desperately sick, in prison, we sing songs and hymns that use that imagery to portray our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And the Lord is kind and merciful and has rescued us, and we're to praise Him for that. We should be humble people, full of gratitude. Just think if in any one of these scenarios it was portrayed that those who had been rescued somehow took credit. It would be utterly ridiculous. You imagine you threw somebody a life saver, a life preserver, and they got to the shore and they took credit for reaching out and grabbing hold of it. They're in the middle of drowning. Or if these sailors, after crying out in their desperate situation, being from their wits end, had been recounting the story, basically saying, well, yeah, it was pretty rough, but you know, our experience saw us through. It's absurd. The psalmist doesn't leave room for that. He shows that the situations were utterly hopeless and that the only hope was the Lord's loving kindness. The only hope was him extending grace and mercy to them in their situation and delivering them out of it. That's it. They brought nothing to the table. Spiritually speaking, we're all as dead as Lazarus was. And the Lord gives life. And just as foolish as it would have been, for Lazarus to be arrogant for the fact that he had been raised from the dead. Foolish for us to be arrogant because we're here instead of out there. It's all because of the Lord's loving kindness. It's all because of the Lord's mercy. God isn't impressed that we're on his team. And you think back to the playground days when you were so stoked if you picked the best kickball player. God doesn't do that with us. He's not like, I, I got him, yes. We're all a liability. I'm a liability to God's kingdom. I have nothing but grace and mercy. I brought nothing to the table. 
And similar to these situations, that's the idea. And those who recognize their plight, recognize what they've been rescued from, should constantly have God's praise with gratitude on their lips. In verse 33, he changes ever so slightly. And it moves into this contemplation of the Lord's sovereignty, his providential control over all the affairs of men, both those who are in good situations and those who are in bad situations. Verses 33 through 38, he talks about how he moves nature in order to afflict or bless men. Then in verses 39 through 42, he talks more directly about the men themselves, more directly at the soul. And there's this back and forth between times of difficulty, times of blessing. Times of difficulty again, then in the end, times of blessing. And this is reminiscent of the blessing and curses text from Deuteronomy where you see what will happen if you disobey, if you forget the Lord, if you turn from his ways, all of these curses would come upon the land. If you obey the Lord, all of these blessings would come upon the land. Abundant provision would accompany obedience and desolation would result from rebellion. And so it's related to that. You also see this picked up in the prophets when punishment is being proclaimed on the people for their disobedience and there's these changes in agricultural circumstances which was their livelihood. And so that's the imagery at least that's in play here. The idea is that God is in control of everything and he providentially works out all the circumstances for all men in creation and in their hearts to accomplish his purposes. And at the end of the day, those who know him are to sit back, take heed, and again, praise him for his loving kindness. In all of his workings, in all of his doings, that is to be remembered. Immediate deliverance might not always take place. There are those who are hungry. There are those who are in misery and sorrow and oppressed. And yet there's to be a response of thanksgiving that recognizes God's care and kindness as evidenced in the prior scenarios that we've just read and with faith respond in praise and thanks trusting that the Lord is gracious and kind as he has shown himself to be and whatever the circumstances are whatever the situations are it's for his purposes and we're to trust him and again consider his loving kindness he afflicts He brings the lofty down. He brings the humble up all in his economy as he knows is best. There may be abundance. There may be lack. But it's in his hands and his people are to respond with faith. Verse 41, this contemplation sort of comes to an end and he says that he sets the needy securely on high away from affliction and he makes his families like a flock. The upright see that and are glad. They respond to the Lord's care, but all unrighteousness shuts his mouth. The idea is that in contemplation of the Lord's providential workings on this earth, that the wicked here are portrayed as recognizing that they're not in control, and then their proud boasts are silenced. They see all that God does. They've been made low. Those who they were oppressing have been lifted up, and they shut up. Their boasts are silenced. They recognize that they're not in charge and that the Lord 
orders the circumstances of life according to his purposes. And God's people, I think the way this fits with the rest of the psalm and the rest of what he's doing here is that God's people are to recognize that God's goodness is behind all of this. We started off, praise the Lord, give thanks to him for he's good. That's a certainty, always, no matter the circumstances. And if you believe that God is good, then you can rejoice in his providential control, even when the immediate circumstances aren't favorable. Somebody with that theology, somebody with a deep-seated understanding that God is good and that he's shown immense loving kindness to his people responds like Job when he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So you take the experiences that are in Psalm 107 and then look at these contemplations. We're reminded of what we said at the beginning, which is that your theology fuels your praise. Faith-filled gratitude recognizes The God who controls your circumstances, whether trial or blessing, is a God of mercy and a God of grace. You're saved after all, right? You're saved. He's been faithful. You have the most important thing that you need in the Lord Jesus. So how's this psalm end? It's kind of an interesting end, this closing reflection, this closing charge. He's recounting these wonderful experiences. Then you have this contemplation And at the end, he says, who is wise? It's a good question, right? We want to be wise. He says, who is wise? Let him give heed to these things. What things? All the things that are in the psalm. The contemplation in the immediate context that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord is in providential control of your circumstances, and also the recountings of these wonderful deliverances. Give heed to that and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. It says, look, you want to be skilled in life? You want to be a well-ordered person in light of God's desires? Then heed, take heed, remember what the Lord has done. Consider the loving kindness of the Lord. With that in mind that we're going to turn our hearts and attention to the Lord's table because that leads us right there. Consider the Lord's loving kindness.